Before we look at our text, I'm going to mention a couple things. One is, we do go deep on Wednesday nights where we take the text and we go further into it and then explore how it applies to our lives. We do that at Bigby Coffee. We meet about 6.45 out in the big room and we just kind of share some coffee and some time together and then we go into the conference room and dig into the scripture. So I want to invite you to be a part of that. You know, Christmas has a, a long, complicated history. So... It was hundreds of years before the church settled on December 25th as the day to celebrate Christ's birth. A lot of people over the years have said, well, that's because the, the Christians were trying to co-opt the Roman holiday of Saturn, Saturnalia, which was several hundred years before that, a wild party. But it had kind of passed on by the time that Christmas, the Christians settled on December 25th. But... That's probably not the case. Um, see, there is an ancient belief that important people often died on the same date they were conceived. And so it's very likely that the church figured out when Jesus died, middle of March, went back nine months, came up with December 25th, and then said, oh, yeah, we can use that too because it's on that Roman holiday and turn people's hearts this way. But, but things get even more complicated about Christmas. Do you know in the Middle Ages, St. Nicholas was somebody you did not want to encounter? Parents used St. Nicholas as a threat. He was always mean to children, trying to get them to act in line, which is not unlike what happened in my family when I was growing up. My parents would say, Santa Claus is always watching and my dad would go out and he would put these little candy canes on the windowsill to let us know that Santa Claus was looking through the windows to see if we kids were obeying our mother. One of my very earliest memories, I'm about five years old, I've got this like pop gun and I am tracking Santa Claus through the snow. <laughs> and I'm not sure what's going to happen when I find him, but he better not be looking in my windows anymore. There was somebody in medieval times named Perchta the Disemboweler. And at Christmas time, he went around the Disemboweler. Yeah, you get the picture. So Christmas has... And then, and then it wasn't really until the 1800s that Christmas became warm and cozy. But as we're telling this story about Christmas, what I want us to understand is the warm and cozy stuff, it's fun, you know? <laughs> I, some, some of my favorite movies are Christmas movies. I love The Bishop's Wife with David Niven and Cary Grant. I love Holiday, which isn't quite a Christmas movie, but with Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is It's a Wonderful Life. I discovered it back in the early 70s before it got popular. And I just thought, this is the greatest movie. So I like the warm and cozy. But Christmas is about an invasion and if we miss that, we miss the point of Christmas. So I want you to look at Luke chapter 1. We're still telling this story. I want us to look at Luke chapter 1, and we're going to go over the cast of characters in this story we've been telling. So Luke chapter 1, in a moment we're going to read from verses 8 and on. But, so there is a couple past middle age. They're living in the hill country of Judea. The man's a clergyman. His wife is a good woman. They've been happy together. The one great sadness that hangs over their lives is that they've never been able to have children. 
that has been a personal heartache to them. It's been a social impediment because in that culture, people without children were considered odd, unfortunate, and maybe even cursed by God. Childlessness was also a financial burden. We think of it just the opposite, don't we? But there were no IRAs or 401ks in those days. Children were a couple's retirement plan. When a man got too old to work, his children provided for he and his wife. Not to have children was financially devastating. This couple's name, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Over 2,000 miles away, there's another character who plays a part, an important part, in this story, though he doesn't appear on stage. His name is Gaius Octavianus. Have you ever heard of him? He was born into a wealthy, privileged, and politically influential family and was pursuing grand political ambitions by the time he was a young man. When our story takes place, those ambitions had been realized, but at the cost of tearing apart his political coalition. In southern Europe, he meets with advisors to brainstorm ways to increase revenues. In those days, as in ours, that meant taxes, usually dressed up in other clothes, right? Sort of like today. The next character, who's one of the leading characters in this story, is a skilled laborer. He's living in central Galilee, about 80 miles, probably 60 miles as the crow flies, north of Jerusalem. He lives in a town with fewer than 2,000 residents, but that's enough to keep him busy in his trade. He's a carpenter. He's a humble and hardworking guy, but he's a man who's known trouble. He's recently become engaged to a much younger woman, we would say a girl, who lives in the same town. His name is Yosef ben Jacob. His fiancée, another one of the lead characters, is named Miriam. Miriam is young. She's too young to get married in 21st century America, but in her culture, she's reached a marriageable age. She may be 14. She has had to grow up quickly. And though she's young, she has an extraordinarily wise heart. There are other characters in this story. There's some farmhands who take care of livestock, sheep to be precise. There's an old man named Simeon, an old widow named Anna. There are also some scholars. There's a provincial provincial ruler who is balanced on the knife edge of insanity. Brilliant, but dangerous. And there are even extraterrestrial beings in our story. That's the story of Christmas. I've mentioned a number of people on the character list, including some with lead roles, but I haven't mentioned the main character yet, who is also the director. He doesn't insert himself into the story until it reaches its climax, and then he only appears in disguise. But what we have to realize as we come to the story of Christmas is that it is just one episode in a much larger project that the director is working on. The epic story of how God makes right what's gone wrong in the world. The lead actor and director and producer is God himself. Last week we looked at the backstory, the Christmas story of rebellion, of Eden and of humanity's disastrous fall. There's much more to that story that could be told, but we're going to jump over millennia of struggle and preparation 
to a domestic scene in a small town in the hill country of Judea. As we focus in, we see a man of middle age packing his things for a trip. His name is Zechariah. He's a priest, and he's headed to Jerusalem to fulfill his annual two-week obligation to serve at the temple. He worries about leaving his wife Elizabeth, though he's done it many times before, and after all these years, she's pretty used to it. He affectionately bids her goodbye, and he starts up the road to Jerusalem. Now, let's read about what happens next. This is Luke chapter 1. I'm going to start with verse 8 and read through verse 17, and then we're going to kind of look at other places in Luke 1 and 2. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, now this is a division of priests, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So he goes into where the altar is. They're all outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he'll go on before the Lord and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. After Zechariah arrived at the temple, comes to Jerusalem, arrives at the temple, he's delighted to learn that he's been selected to burn the incense at the altar. Now, that was an honor, and he would have been very excited about it. You see, at this time, there were something like 18,000 Levites and priests in Israel. There were so many of them that they only served two weeks out of the year at the temple. This was an opportunity that would come along only once in a lifetime, maybe not even that. When the angel appeared and told him he was going to have a son, now this is something he probably stopped praying about decades ago. Zechariah didn't believe him. And because of that, the angel did something to Zechariah that left him speechless. And I mean literally speechless. He was mute until the child was born. You can imagine how hard it was for Zechariah to go back home and tell his wife what had happened. He can't speak. He can make signs to her. He could write, and she probably could read, though we're not sure of that. But pencils and papers had not yet been invented. Writing was not nearly as easy as it is now. Communication would have been very difficult. Nevertheless, there must have been some communication because it wasn't long before Elizabeth found out that she was pregnant. You know what that meant to them? Not just that God had had mercy on them, how they had longed for a child and even given up on ever having one. God had had mercy, yes. It's not just that God knew about their situation. He cared about them personally. That was true too, but they saw this in a larger context. To them, it meant that God was on the move. 
it meant that he was fulfilling his ancient promises. He was at last sending the restorer, the redeemer, the one who was going to make everything right. That's why Zechariah, when he regained his voice, sang out that God had remembered his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from our, the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah realized that he and Elizabeth had been caught up in the current of what God was doing to fulfill his ancient promises. Their son was going to have a part in that story. That must have thrilled them. But their sons was not the only part in this story. I mentioned before, there was someone else who had a part to play. And that was the Imperator Kaiser Divi Filius Augustus, the divine son, the Emperor Caesar Augustus, who had been known prior to that as Gaius Octavianus. By his prowess, he had turned Rome into an empire. But you know what? Empires need cash to fund their military expeditions and their occupational governments through which they rule. A week, that's how Rome ruled, always through somebody else's government that they set up. A weak occupational government is an invitation to revolt, and one regional revolt would inevitably lead to another. So the divine son, Augustus, needed cash. And where does a political leader find that? He finds it in the pockets of the people he rules. That is, he figures out a new way to levy taxes. The trouble is that taxing people, especially people your army has conquered, whose sons and daughters they have killed, taxing them makes them unhappy. And unhappy people are more likely to revolt. So Caesar and his advisors come up with a tax plan that concealed their imperial fingerprints. First in Egypt, this was 14 BC. By the way, scholars used to say, this never happened. This never happened. It wasn't until a few decades ago that they found record of this same tax in Egypt in, under Gaius Maximus in 14 BC. The same tax. The same thing. Go back to your homeland to register for a census. Later, it happens all over the empire. Local governors called all men to return to their places of origin. And you have to understand that tribal roots ran very deep in places like this. To register for a census. The purpose behind the census, though, of course, was levying a tax. That's what St. Luke is referring to when he writes in chapter 2. This is verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. I mentioned what scholars said. They said Caesar Augustus never did such a thing. Luke just invented that so he could tell this story until they found that document about Egypt in 14 B.C. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. The emperor's minions no doubt called him a genius. This was brilliant. But God used the genius of this cunning politician in far-off Rome to advance his plan to restore and save the world. God's plan 
was to undo the damage done in the garden. And that required a restorer, a savior, a king. But undoing the damage, that's like undoing a hereditary disease. How could it be accomplished? I read some years ago on a book by Dr. Oliver Sacks about an island in the South Pacific where everyone, everyone is profoundly colorblind. Every person native to the island sees in grayscale. No one understands color at all. Color blindness has affected every sighted person on the island. How could that ever be undone? Well, by introducing a color sighted person into the genetic line. That's not unlike God's plan. He introduced a human into sin ravaged humanity who was free of sin, a man who had not been affected, someone like us in every way, yet without sin. But if everyone had been affected by the first man's fall, where on earth would this person be found? Not on earth. In heaven. He is, as Paul put it, the man from heaven. Read 1 Corinthians 15, 47, 48, 49, and you'll get this. He was, in fact, the eternal son of God. It took God to be a man. Isn't that ironic? It took God to be a man. The only way to restore man to true manhood, to true humanity, was for God himself to enter humanity. And Bethlehem was the entry point. See how big this is? Bethlehem was the bridgehead of the invasion. One of God's mercies to us is that he works within and by his word. So you'll never understand God if you don't understand that he works by his word. And he had sent word through the prophet Micah, this is hundreds of years earlier, that promised that the restorer king would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a second home to Ruth, who was the grandmother of King David, and it was the birthplace of David through whose line the restorer king was promised to come. In fact, promised over and over to come. And that brings us back to the story and to the best-known characters in the story. Joseph ben Jacob, we call him Joseph, and Miriam, who for some reason we call Mary. It was through Mary that God intended to send humanity's cure. But Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, which was about 80 miles, by then current roads, from Bethlehem. Yet God promised that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the restorer king. Mary was pregnant, carrying the cure of the world. But Bethlehem was a long ways away. As far as we know, she had never been there, and had neither reason nor desire to go there. And by the way, did you know that Jesus was never back in Bethlehem, as far as we know, after his birth? It's never recorded that Jesus ever went back. And why would Mary want to go there? And now that she was pregnant, she had reason not to go there. 80 miles by foot or donkey, almost all of it uphill, was good reason to stay home. So God had a problem. What was he going to do? How's he going to get Mary to Bethlehem so the child king, the restorer, could be born there? 
How is God going to keep his word? Well, of one thing you can be sure. God was not in heaven biting his fingernails, worried about how to get Mary to Bethlehem in time for the baby to be born. He had this. For that matter, he has everything. God has never been worried about a thing. He's never been late, never once, never been in danger of being late. All of time is at his fingertips. And the hearts of kings are in his hands. The king's heart, this is Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course, wherever he pleases. The heart of the so-called divine son, the emperor Caesar Augustus, king of kings, lord of lords, was putty in the hands of the king of heaven, who directed it wherever he pleased. And Augustine didn't even know it. Caesar, in his inner circle, way off in Rome, must have congratulated themselves on the brilliant plan they came up with. Use people's tribal and nationalist loyalties, the very thing that caused revolts and uprisings, use it as a prelude to a tax increase that would fund the military suppression of revolts and uprisings. It was a stroke of genius. But God is the real genius here. He was pursuing plans about which the emperor knew nothing. God took Caesar's plan, and this is important, without infringing on Caesar's will in the least, or Joseph's or Mary's, he used it to bring the restorer king to Bethlehem just in time for him to be born, as the ancient prophet foretold. See, God is just that good at what he does. He sees past and future. He can step into time at any point he pleases and make everything and everyone serve his purpose. He isn't like us, poor, time-bound creatures. He inhabits eternity. Or more precisely, eternity is in him. Eternity is in him And by the miracle of the incarnation, so are we. In Christ, God joined two natures, divine and human, in one person. God didn't just become human. That's important to understand. As as miraculous as that would be, God didn't just become human. He remained God and took humanity into himself. That's what the church means when it says the Athanasian Creed. Although he is God and man, he is not two but one. One, by, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. He is God in our skin, and we are humans in God's heart. The restorer king is God and man. The baby in the manger, see, is the portal to another world. The way to God, as St. Peter describes him, and the door, as he would later describe himself, to salvation. And most amazing of all, the door that opens to heaven has been hung on hinges nailed to a cross. Who would ever have imagined? This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. This is the miracle in a manger, 
the cure for humanity, the savior from sin, the king of God's kingdom. This baby wrapped in swaddling is the gift of eternal life. He is humanity's future. Last week we saw that humanity rebelled against the creator in the garden. When they did, he did not crush them. He went looking for them. He is a father who looks for his lost and wayward children. There's a story written by a husband and wife called The Water Diviner. And in that story, this Australian father and his wife, their three sons, go off to war, World War I. And they fight in Turkey. Terrible battle in Turkey. They fight in Turkey, and the three boys never come home. And the mother takes her own life in her grief. And the father promises her that he will find their three sons. So he goes to look for them, looking for their bodies, really. He arrives in Turkey. He arrives at the site of the battle. He asks a British major who's overseeing things for his help, and the British major treats him like dirt. He wants nothing to do with him, utterly refuses. Later, a Turkish officer asks the major why he won't help this man. And the major says, I can't go about helping every father who won't stay put and let the authorities handle the matter. And the Turkish officer replies to him, yes, but he's the only father who came looking. The incarnation is about the God who came looking remember the garden? The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He went looking. He's the God who won't stay put. And you know what it looks like, don't you, when the heavenly father goes looking for his rebellious and fallen, his bruised and dirty children? It looks like a baby wrapped in swaddling, lying in a manger. It looks like a bloody and bruised man hanging on a cross. This is the God who won't stay put. This is the God who comes looking. And he's come looking for you. He will find you if he hasn't already. The God who sees into emperor's council rooms into rural priests' bedrooms, and even into the hearts of young peasant girls and their fiancés. He knows where to look. Many of us have responded to the looking God. We've changed our minds, we've stopped hiding, and we've trusted him enough to place our lives under his rule. If you haven't done that, I invite you to do that this morning, before you leave this place. That's what Christmas it's all about. Now let's pray. God, we've made Christmas safe. But there's nothing safe about it. There was certainly nothing safe for your son. Lord, instead of us trying to make Christmas 
meet all our needs and make us happy. Would you help us this year to use it? To bring you glory and to be your people. I ask for this great grace. In the name of the Restorer King, Jesus. Amen.